Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Lerner. Join us now for a conversation with David Bombright, Director of Keystone Accountability. Our subject is Saving the World, What International Philanthropy Can and Cannot Do. David Bombright, welcome to the New School. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. David, you've been an international grant maker with the Ford Foundation in Africa during the end of apartheid and with the Aga Khan Development Network in pre- and post-9-11 Pakistan, Tajikistan, and Afghanistan. You were originally from Ross, California, and for many years you've been based in London with your uh, gifted filmmaker wife, Elaine Proctor, uh, who is from South Africa originally. But your mission in recent years has been um, a remarkable one that you call Keystone Accountability, which, as I understand, aims to create a better way for foundations and non-governmental organizations and other civil society uh, actors to evaluate the actual effectiveness of what they do. And uh, I've been uh, reflecting on how important this is because... As you point out in a a remarkable essay you wrote recently, you just remind us that there are over a billion people in the world who live on $1 a day. And there are an additional 3 billion people who live on $5 a day. And against that, we have 1% of the world's population that owns 40% of the planet's wealth. And over half of the adults in the world own only 1%. So, as I understand it, one of the things that has really driven you uh, to focus on uh, how we can do a better job with the resources available for poor people and for the environment and other issues uh, relates to this profound uh, disparity in resources and therefore the need uh, to make the resources available as effective as they possibly can be. And I've been just kind of wrestling with why it is that you've taken on this question of accountability of foundations and nonprofit organizations as such a fundamental driving force in your life. Um, Have I sort of gotten to the core of it? Because we're going to be talking about issues that often make people's eyes glaze over when we think about uh, you know, how you achieve real accountability for foundations and nonprofits. Oh, absolutely. Um, and the decision to kind of use and adopt that language and, in a sense, try to appropriate it to a kind of a higher purpose, a purpose that's more fundamentally aligned with, with um, things we think more traditionally about justice issues, for example, um, is one that... that um, was conscious and um, in some sense is, I think, part of the spirit of the day. Um, and it goes directly to the way you introduce the problem. Um, people are aware, people of means, people of affluence are aware increasingly of um, the really obscene disparities in our world and the necessity to do something about it. And um, you can, everywhere you turn, you can see. Um, a kind of growing frustration with um, public institutions which uh, I think ordinary citizens look at and say, 
hey, they're not they're not addressing these problems. So that's kind of what they're there for, but but it's not being done. And there's a kind of call for accountability for. Uh, I mean, I think what's meant by that is is to see results, and and so that's in the air, and um, it it goes beyond the kind of traditional notions of accountability as a kind of compliance process where you demonstrate that you follow through on your. Uh, contractual obligations, or you've spent the money the way you were supposed to spend it, and really is now pushing to um, to really say accountability for the change, for the results, um, for the purposes that that um, we we need to achieve in this world. And so we've tried to kind of you know use that pull and 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 work from it. But I have to say, you know, it's not essential to. Um, ultimately, to what we're trying to do, which is to enable people to actually see the results, as you said, that are happening out there, and to see the ways forward. And sometimes other language works better, um, and so that's that's all right too. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, different countries, it's also very different, and different languages, it's different. Um, most countries, you know, the only language the only language in the world that has the word accountability or a word for accountability is English. And it doesn't translate well in most other languages. So there's a problem right there uh, just to, with that kind of choice. So we find ourselves when we're working in, in other languages really to, to be looking for what are the local idioms that are meaningful to people. So uh, tell us, focus us in for a moment on, on what Keystone accountability is. When you describe uh, in a moving in an elevator. What's the elevator conversation about Keystone accountability? What do you say to people that you're trying to do? Yeah, I, I wish I could get the elevator pitch down. I'm not sure I have it, but I'll, I'll do my best. Um, there, are, there are several elements to enabling sustained um, change for the good. And one of the critical pieces, and one of the critical pieces that is most neglected in the way organizations practice in their management, is to ensure that the people who are meant to benefit most from whatever change is being proposed have a real voice in the operation of that organization. And um, so many times what happens is, those people are just shut out, the beneficiaries and the other kind of people who are constituent to the change. Their voices don't come through in public reporting. Um, their perspective on whether or not the organization is, is effective doesn't, isn't heard, um, except anecdotally when people kind of you know, publicize a, a positive story or two about their work uh, selectively. So, for and, example, you might have a a very charismatic director of a project, say, in Africa, who is, you know, who enchants donors and does a great job raising money, uh, but nobody asks the African villagers who are supposed to be benefiting uh, how effective this enchanting, uh, charismatic director's projects actually are on the ground. Exactly. Right. And, and the systems that are in place for um, reporting uh, in nonprofits, the kind of traditional accountability systems, don't insist on that. Um, for the last um, few years, I've been suggesting to um, grant-making institutions that they, simp they add a simple requirement to their reporting requirements with grantees. They all have reporting requirements, and um, I've said to them, why don't you just simply ask 
your grantees to report back to you on their results and on what their beneficiaries say about what they say their results are. And it's interesting, you know, in the last 12 months, we're starting to get some uptake on that idea, and foundations are starting to say, okay, how do we do it? And the, uh, and the, and the, so the conversation is starting to move. So that's been an exciting new development. But so how do, how how would you do that? How would you not? How would you ensure that the uh, nonprofit organization wasn't just you know selecting uh, a few voices that were saying the right things and screening out the ones that weren't? What's what's the mechanism by which you sure. do that? Well, I mean, um, it would be you know you need to figure out the right mechanism in each context, but you have to have some system of verification or it's too easy to game it. And people, because there's money at stake, people will do whatever it takes to, to get the money to get on with their work, um, or in some cases maybe not to get on with the work, but to get the money. So you need to establish the principle first. The principle is that the constituency voices need to be heard, Correct. and then depending on the context, uh, there'll be different ways of uh, ensuring uh, that that's actually the case and that, that the system isn't being ga- gained. That's right. And so let me give you an example of how they've done something similar in the Philippines um, that I think could be adapted for the purpose of verifying constituency uh, perspectives. Philippines set up a few years ago, Philippine NGOs um, were threatened by um, the withdrawal of the tax benefit for individual giving to or corporate giving to um, and nonprofits in the Philippines, and the government was basically saying there's too much uh, money that's going awry here, and we're losing tax dollars, and we're going to withdraw this benefit. And the the Philippine NGOs organized themselves and they went to the government. and They said, look, if we can demonstrate to you that our NGOs are really effective, will you leave the provision in place? And the government said, okay if you can do that. And so they self-organized a, a, an NGO certification uh, organization called the Philippine Council for NGO Certification, which certifies um, the quality of the management practices in, in, in NGOs. Now, the cost of doing this in a kind of, uh, you know, hiring professional consultants or accountants like an, audit, like an audit were way beyond what was affordable here by these groups. And so what they designed was a peer review system. And um, they developed some really good rules to avoid conflicts of interest and, and a collusion in the peer review. And they basically run it as a national volunteer peer review system where it, once you're certified, you then have to put your senior staff up or, and they have to be available once a year to go and do a review in another organization. And it's been evolving now for a decade, and it's incredibly sophisticated and very effective. And how deep is the penetration into the whole NGO structure in the Philippines of that process? Well, that's a, a great question. The answer is not yet deep enough. They, it's, been, it's been a few years in, in um, establishing itself. I think they've certified about 1,000 NGOs now, and I think they've got, you know, kind of 100,000 to go. So they're in the early days, and they're trying to figure out how to scale the model. Um, but, you know, they're, they're resilient and inventive, and they'll find the way. Um, Just following up on this Philippine example for a moment, because you've had such broad experience around the world uh, with uh, nonprofits and the extraordinary work you did in South Africa with the Ford Foundation. We'll come back to that. And with the Aga Khan Development Network, 
But in my experience, the, the Philippine NGO network is one of the most sophisticated and developed networks that I know of in the global south. Why do you suppose that is? Well, first of all, do you share that assumption or am I wrong? But secondly, oh. why do you suppose it is that in the Philippines uh, that the network of non-governmental organizations is so elaborate and so sophisticated? Um, I share it. Um, I would put a, a, a further a kind of description on it, which is that I, 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 agree, I agree that from a Western managerial and nonprofit sector kind of point of view, it's very recognizable. It's very familiar. A lot the same principles seem to be working, and it kind of, they kind of organize in the same way that uh, the, uh, they do in the United States or the UK, kind of Anglo. American tradition, and in that, and that's, and it's very effective. It's proven to be very effective as a kind of management organizing dynamic. I think the his, the history and the reason for it, so a lot of it has to do with the with the you know the role of the United States in the Philippines. And the Philippines is this kind of access country between Asia and the U.S. and probably also um, Catholicism. In uh-huh. some sense. How so? You know, it's it's an overwhelmingly Catholic country. Mm-hmm. And um, and the kind of organizational base of the Catholic Church is probably there as part of the cultural template, and may may partly explain it. So what you're saying, and it's very valuable, is is that it's it's because there's a cultural resonance between the Philippines and and the Western democracies, we can see the civil society network there more easily than we can in say another culture with a wholly different system of organizing. Yes, I get it. That's really helpful. Okay, so if one of your principles is is strengthening constituent voices and bringing those, making it a requirement that uh, donors and and uh, non governmental organizations uh, report on what the constituents are saying about what is being done in their name, uh, what are the other fundamental principles of uh, Keystone's work? Another one, well, another one is that um, I mean, if you, it, they kind of all grow out of the recognition that what we call constituency voice is at the heart of social change practice. And when you take constituency voice very seriously, one of the questions you have to ask is, what's the frame against which people are really assessing the organization? Um, you know, when you're trying to produce uh, long-term um, uh, change around difficult problems. It's very hard to see that in in the kind of organizational time frames of a year reporting cycle or even a two or a three year cycle. Um, lots of times, the changes that are, are are happening are being caused by multiple forces, and so attributing them to a single organization, what it's doing, is very difficult. The whole kind of measurement problem in social change is deeply complex. And therefore, um, and it's also complex for the stakeholders, you know, the beneficiaries, to assess the organization. In many cases, they may have a very partial view of it. Um, and so, part of what we what we've kind of tried to do is, is show the ways in which organizations can work with constituents in the early stages, the the stage where you define what you're going to try to do, set your outcomes or your goals, and and decide what what everyone thinks success should look like. And so, so you have a measure, an indicator against which everyone can then reflect on progress as it happens. Not to say that that, and to use it very explicitly, 
as a kind of point of learning and reflection so that it's not a kind of, you don't set up a kind of teach-to-the-test model, but you, uh, in fact, set up a model that says these are the kind of indicators we would expect to see if, if the kind of activities that we are proposing and everyone agrees we should be doing have the effect we think it should have. But let's, let's talk about that as it goes, and if other things start to be happening, let's reflect on that together and uh, revise our goals. So it's, instead of being like a, a motorboat that's kind of heading across toward a buoy on the other side of the bay, it's more like a sailboat that is heading to the buoy but is sailing uh, in the wind and therefore tacking and adjusting in the light of the realities of what's happening. So is this what you describe uh, as mapping paths to outcomes? Exactly. So if we start with wanting the constituents to be heard as to whether something's really benefiting them, then the second point is a participatory process involving both the NGO, the funder, and the constituencies in agreeing on what progress would actually look like. Exactly. I get it. And, and also, a very closely related to that, um, because... Real development and social change is always about building capacity and confidence and, um, and, and locating leadership in places where it hasn't been before and energy and, and dynamism. And so critical to that is starting to pay, having everyone, the donors, the, the beneficiaries, the organization that's, that's kind of driving the change, paying attention to what are the capabilities that we're building in order to realize this. And so focusing not only on outcomes, but also growing our capabilities as the kind of critical steps toward those outcomes. But at the end of the day, if you, know, you want to solve the problem of malnutrition in a, in a poor urban area, um, if you build the capability of parents in those communities to solve the problem, you don't have to set targets around the number of clinics that are being built or the kind of quality of public education announcements that are going out over the radio. Um, and so we try to shift an orientation to be looking very much at getting those capabilities into the discussion of what success looks like. So, and I guess in, in nonprofit shorthand, some people talk about that as infrastructure development, for example. That's right, or institutional development, yeah. Right. But it's more than that that you're saying, really. You're saying if, if, we're re if we really care about the constituencies who are supposed to benefit, then in addition to uh, uh, making sure their voices are heard and making sure that they are part of the agreement on what real progress looks like, you're shifting the focus to developing the resources of the constituency themselves. You're saying... Even if we don't hit the targets for, uh, you know, measurement, even if it turns out as we tack toward the buoy that the goals or objectives, markers change, nonetheless, if we're empowering the constituencies and building power in the constituencies, that's what really matters. That's right. And, you know, sometimes um, I've seen it happen again and again where a community organizes around some difficult problem and they launch a project and it gets funded for a period of time. Then the funding goes away because the issues have shifted and the project dies. But then, you know, three months, six months, nine months later, because of the capabilities that were built along the way in the community, the kind of phoenix rises from the ashes and starts again. And they always start, you know, from, you know, kind of moving on from where they were before 
the next project's better conceived, maybe it won't be, it'll be conceived in a way that won't be as dependent on external funding, etc. So, a third of the, your basic principles, as I understand, you, you talk about thinking and acting from an ecosystem perspective. What do you mean by that? Well, the, the, the kind of simple idea at the base of this is, is I think, a kind of one of these truisms, which is no organization by itself causes um, significant social change. Um, there, there's just, it's just the nature of the problems are too complex for that, and it takes, um, it takes lots of organizations and lots of different factors to, to shift uh, against an, a difficult problem. And so um, we tend to stand very much inside our organizations as we work. And, you know, 90% of our time is spent on kind of fixing and making uh, our organizations operate properly. And the, the challenge, I think, is to try to stand in the ecosystem rather than to stand in your organization and to see all of the actors uh, at play around the problem uh, that you're addressing and have some way of um, enabling them to also stand in the system. And so we've developed some tools and, and guidelines about how to, a sense, in a sense, move from an organizational planning process to a system planning process. And I understand that intuitively from the work I've been close to in, in uh, the emerging environmental health movement, both nationally and globally, and how the real power of that movement has come from the wisdom of uh, some of the earliest thinkers that uh, that we really needed to develop, uh, as you said, an ecosystem of the whole thing to which we all had a sense of contribution and participation. I'm wondering uh, how that happens in practice in, let's say, uh, an African country uh, with uh, a much uh, a less... Uh, developed resource base uh, for creating a civil society organizations. In other words, can you give us an example, possibly in Africa, it might be somewhere else, of, of a place where there aren't many resources uh, and yet you were able to develop that ecosystem perspective or somebody was able to develop sure. that ecosystem no, I, I perspective? Can. I've, I've got a good example, I think. Um, what this and it's like this is a kind of example that could be replicated again and again and again around the whole uh, kind of development project mindset. There was a, a kind of a leadership development project that we worked with in the Eastern Cape in South Africa that was working on youth leadership, and it was well conceived and reasonably resourced and very able and committed. Passionate people were 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 driving it forward from a, a funded NGO with a with a research with that kind of university base. And um, the program began to kind of uh, uh, it was it kind of went through the training for the for the youth and and then they kind of sat back to see what was going to happen and the projects weren't kind of going that the youth were supposed to be launching weren't going in the way that they wanted and it was just about that time that we came into the picture and we suggested to them that they go and just do something very simple which is go and speak to the people who were around the youth that they had trained and share with them what they had expected those people would be doing about the, the youth projects, um, to basically share their assumptions about what parents, what local government chiefs, school principals, 
were were doing vis-a-vis these kids. And what happened when they went and did with this was that the folks around the kids had absolutely no idea that these uh, assumptions were being made about them, and in most cases they were not correct assumptions. On the other hand, once everybody saw the kind of collective set of, of, of assumptions and opportunities, the kind of a whole bunch of energy was released, and um, uh, um, the community kind of around the kids organized itself to provide more support to them. So, I've, I've, I'm wondering how, in a, again, a very resource-poor environment, if the, uh, let's just imagine that that had started from scratch, as you would have recommended it would. Oh. Uh, what would have kept the community from um, being so hungry for the scarce resources that were hopefully going to go to this youth development project that in the ecological process of bringing the community in and engaging them in, in the development of the thinking, there wouldn't have been a tremendous amount of division among uh, different constituencies trying to be sure that they get a piece of the resources? Mm. Well, I mean, there, there are probably, in any, you know, development is politics and resources always uh, get, um, become a point of contestation. So a certain amount of that would definitely happen in any, um, in any uh, meaningful uh, uh, kind of intervention in a poor area. That's just part of the context. Mm-hmm. But the answer has to be in the quality of the process and the leadership um, that comes in. And, um, you know, you can, you can um, come in with a frame around what you want to do that says, look, we, we want to work with you to ensure that your youth, your children, have opportunities and are productive in their lives in ways that give them opportunities that you haven't had and we'll come back to you in the forms of new forms of support that they'll be able to provide back to the community because of the support that we'd like to give them. But we can't do it without you. And that's when the conversation begins. And it may be in certain circumstances that that's a non-starter and that this, these circumstances are such that you can't, you know, you can't get support in the community for that approach, for that theory of change, for that kind of intervention. In which case, that community's not ready for that intervention. You need another one if you want to work with them. I get it. Now, we've talked about three fundamental principles uh, from Keystone's perspective of fostering constituent voices and mapping paths to outcomes and thinking from an ecosystem perspective. Your fourth and final principle is publishing your learning. What do you mean by that? Well, I guess, you know, our theory of change is that... um, Societies solve important problems when they learn how to solve them. And that the highest purpose of any organization dedicated to um, uh, making an important change in the world is to enable learning. And um, I think this is an area where we in the, in the kind of social change sector um, often fall down. We get very caught up in the doing of the change and we kind of run out of steam and resource and imagination before we get to that last mile, which is to make sure everybody understands what we've learned, what's been achieved, 
and therefore um, uh, can be extended without our own efforts. And um, so we really emphasize the reporting piece, um, and we try to emphasize that what you, you put out into the, into the public domain um, should not only be kind of, you know, the facts and figures about what you've achieved, but is reflective and thoughtful and, 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 and sharing of the kind of learning that's gone on in the, in the, in the change process. Um, it also, by the way, creates uh, a level of uh, transparency uh, that um, provides for, um, you know, kind of integrity in, 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 the, act, in the reporting, because uh, if, if what you're saying you've achieved in, in the kind of different perspectives of your stakeholders are being published and uh, put into the public domain, uh, it's possible for people to kind of raise their hands and say, wait a minute, that's not what we said. Um, and uh, so you have a kind of self-policing uh, or self-monitoring uh, dimension. We'll be right back after a short break. So, reflecting on this, I just, and from my own years of work in the nonprofit sector, these things actually make sense to me, uh, that you really want the voice of the constituencies to be heard. You really want some agreement on what you're hoping the outcomes are going to be and how you get there. You want to be thinking about the problems you're going to solve in a larger ecosystem perspective because... Um, no single organization is going to solve these huge problems, and only if we think ecologically about them is there a real shot at, uh, at progress. And finally, you want to report on what you've learned. So those four things are the, the basic ideas. Is that correct? Correct. Right. So um, where, what did you learn. I, I want to sort of turn back now to your world experience, uh, which um, I've been so intrigued by. And, and let's start with your experience in South Africa. Uh, you were with the Ford Foundation in, in South Africa during the, the pivotal period when apartheid came to an end. Mm -hmm. And if my memory serves me right, you were actually uh, told by the apartheid government that you're presence in South Africa was no longer needed and asked to leave. Am I correct on that? That's right. right. Yeah, right. So, so what did you learn from your experience in South Africa uh, helping as Ford Foundation played a major role, and you were central to that, uh, with uh, ending apartheid? What did you? What was the sort of lasting life lesson from you of those years in South Africa as you watched uh, the emergence uh, of the new South Africa? Well, Michael, I, I'm still really trying to understand all the things that I learned and took in in that time. Um, it was a most extraordinary privilege to um, uh, spend uh, 12 years, really, in the straddle, the final kind of five, six, seven years of apartheid and the first few years of the birthing of the new South Africa, kind of see, you know, kind of live through all that. Um, but um, 
I don't know. I mean, I could I could pick a couple of the the big highlights. Well, give us give us an example of a, a moment uh, that you lived through in South Africa that uh, that remains indelible in your mind. Well, I'll tell you. I can There's so many. I'll tell you a couple. One was, um, I I was my first visit to South Africa in 1983, and I was speaking with a number of. Um, Kind of liberation theologian priests at a at an ecumenical seminary in Peter Maritzburg outside of in in Natal, in the countryside, and it was a beautiful day, uh, spring day, and we were sitting um, in the in the on some benches outside with a play, next to the playground at the seminary, and the playground was full of kind of two, three, four, five-year-olds from, you know, of every color, white, brown, black. And they were playing just happily, and it was, a, you know, kind of this idyllic scene of uh, kind of non-racial harmony and behind us. And we were sitting, and they were telling me stories about um, their struggle in their lives, and those stories involved um, torture, um, murder, um, the most uh, kind of constant uh, forms of humiliation that they and their families had been through. And I, I, was, I remember this moment to this day because I was sitting there listening to them and looking at these kids. And at one point, uh, this one priest kind of finished a story of, of um, an experience of torture that he had and then he laughed, and he laughed from the bottom of his being, and it was so incongruous mm. uh, with what he'd said, and I just shut down. I actually, I, I, I threw up. I literally just, I felt this huge thing, and I just vomited right there. Wow. And, and the next thing that happened, I could feel these arms around me, and everyone was just kind of holding me. Oh. And uh, I just, I, I could not cope with what was happening anyone who knows South Africans and knows people who've lived through the struggle knows about this laughter that South Africans use to kind of come to terms. How do you, you know, how do you keep your humanity? And these are people who have no bitterness, no bitterness toward the people mm. who have oppressed them and denied their humanity for generations. They are without any bitterness, which is the, the magic of South Africa. It's not true of all of them, but it is true of a significant proportion of the of the leadership from Mandela on down. And so that's, I think, one of the major takeaways is this, this extraordinary humanity which has been honed in the fire of the forge of um, uh, oppression and come out of it um, just so liberated. It's the power of forgiveness at a level that uh, one, cannot, one can almost not imagine how you could get there after going through those experiences. Exactly. And, you know, they'd, and, 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 the, and the Federal Theological Seminary at Peter Maritzburg was this kind of wonderful, this was 1983, you know, deep in the apartheid era. It was this wonderful non-racial fact that just sat there in the middle of this terrible system. And so they didn't, they, not only did they not give in, but they simply got on with the job of creating spaces where uh, another, another reality could be. What was Ford Foundation's basic strategy uh, uh, in grant making to try to help this uh, 
to help end apartheid and bring mm. the new South Africa into being. Well, and and did it work? What, what, it, yeah, it did. It was a. It, I think it was an incredibly successful and effective and extraordinary um, time. And it came. Our strategy really came from South African leaders. Uh, the first there were two. The first one was around defending rights and and the rule of law. And um, Desmond Tutu and others, they came to the foundation and said, um, you know, there is a danger that um, because of the way this regime uses the law to repress us, that, that people will give up on rule of law completely and see it and equate it with oppression. And we need examples in this country of law as, uh, as something that is justice rather than repression. And they proposed that we uh, support uh, human rights offices and bring in international human rights norms wherever we could into South Africa to promote, you know, legal def- provide legal defense for people who were um, being persecuted, even though um, we knew overwhelmingly most of the cases would be lost because of the way the laws were structured. There was a kind of functioning judiciary. It had a certain amount of independence. It was the English tradition, and it was kind of honored in the institutional forms. And so there was space to at least stand up and make the arguments and defend people. And it made the hugest difference to um, to black South Africans that there were people standing up, that they were standing up and fighting. And, of course, Mandela himself, of course, was a lawyer, as a lot of the senior leadership of the ANC um, were. So there was this kind of attempt to in a sense, symbolically continue that tradition of using law uh, as a, and, and human rights as an instrument of liberation rather than repression. So that was one stream, and there were a whole range of grants around that. And, I mean, just one story about it. Ford provided the, the seed grant that led to the first public interest law firm in the country being set up, and the, the individual who left a very successful private practice to do that and, very, and built a, a brilliant organization um, that still goes very strong to this day, the Legal Resources Center. Um, Arthur Chaskelson became the first chief justice after independence and led the development of what many people have considered to be one of the most successful uh, institutions of the new South Africa, which is the, uh, the independent judiciary. So if we reflect on this story for just a moment and go back to your four fundamental principles, uh, here you were uh, fostering from the beginning constituent voices. So your constituencies, in some sense, were the leadership of uh, of the new South Africa, the emerging leadership. Uh, you were working with them to map paths to outcomes. There was a sense that by uh, building respect for the law, that this was a, a critical strategy for the future. Uh, that's certainly part of thinking in an ecosystem perspective. So uh, just using your fundamentals, uh, just and I hadn't rehearsed this before oh. in any way, mm. one can see how naturally uh, they fit with this very successful uh, and widely recognized intervention by Ford Foundation in South Africa. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that's right. You know, we're all we're formed by our own experiences, and in many ways, I, I've seen everything that I've done since those years as being a, a kind of attempt to understand what happened there and create uh, ways of working that uh, that uh, build from those lessons. So, I'm really intrigued by the uh, the Aga Khan Social Development Network. Tell us. Uh, 
who is the Aga Khan? What is the Aga Khan Social Development Network? Well, um, the Aga Khan is a, um, is a man who uh, leads a community of people who um, are living in, I don't know, 35 countries, the Ismailis. He's the religious and kind of secular leader of a people. They don't have a country. Um, they live all over the world, so they're kind of sometimes referred to as a people without a state, the Ismailis. But they, um, they uh, are, a, technically speaking, a kind of Shiite sect of Islam. The, the Aga Khan is himself the 49th um, a direct descendant of the Prophet Muhammad. And um, his grandfather, uh, the Aga Khan before him, actually kind of moved the base of the, of the imamate from uh, India to, uh, to Europe. And so they're now uh, based in Paris. But Ismailis live, as I said, in about 35 countries. And, um, and so uh, he kind of watches over the, the welfare of, of his people and uh, in that Islamic way that is holistic and looks across from the material and economic to the spiritual kind of care and concern. So, um, and the, the current Aga Khan is an extraordinary institution builder, and he's built a, an array of economic, educational, social, and cultural institutions uh, that all operate under the aegis of the Aga Khan Development Network and all have a strong orientation toward long-term sustainable development. So, in many ways, he was the kind of worst long... I mean, one of, one of the very first long-term... Uh, venture capitalists in the developing world because he never got involved in businesses uh, unless he was prepared to take a very long-term perspective because he said if you're trying to build up the publishing industry in East Africa as he has done through the, the, his uh, uh, investments in the nation newspaper and other, other um, periodicals there, um, you have to look at it in a 20-year horizon. It doesn't make sense to try to go in and make your money in five years and get out. And he's done that again and again in different, different uh, industries around the world. Similarly, he's built education systems, school systems, um, health systems, and uh, overarching at this Aga Khan Foundation where I worked, which kind of provides grants and raises money from uh, other grant-making institutions and particularly official aid to support um, uh, good development projects in the countries that they work. So this sounds like a very sophisticated uh, process. Very. And tell me, it obviously would occur to any listener to ask, um, in the uh, aftermath of 9-11 and the development of the war on terrorism and, and the really the, the demonization of the Shiite uh, branch of Islam, uh, this... Uh, sect of, of uh, this is this is uh, Islam Ismaili sect of the the Shiite branch of Islam what perspective uh, do they have on the whole uh, war on terror well I don't think there's a perspective I think it's quite complicated um, you know wherever you live um, this has been one of these hugely polarizing and divisive um, experiences, and we've all uh, experienced it to some extent. But um, imagine you're an Ismaili living in the United States, American citizen born there, and um, all of a sudden 
you are now treated differently from every other American that you've grown up with every time you get on, go to an airport and try to get on an airplane. And you need to spend three extra hours for every trip you're going to make because you know you're going to be um, pulled aside and treated rudely and, and all the rest. So uh, there's this extent to which the kind of just your day-to-day experience of Ismailis in the West has, uh, has changed. Um, but then, but then the most Ismailis are living in India, Pakistan, uh, you know, Tajikistan. Afghanistan, and they would have a very different experience. They're in part of it. They're a small minority in a larger sea of Muslims, where they uh, where they would be, in a sense, more like uh, you know just being pulled pulled back and forth in the larger uh, dynamics that uh, are around them in their country at the time. So it would vary deeply depending on what country you were in. What, what? In other words, there'd be a tremendous range of responses. Exactly. Right. exactly. And I think I think there, you know, so the, the kind of general polarization, the general, uh, you know, kind of r- uh, rise of fundamentalism. It, I mean, it it always hits minorities harder, um, and so as minorities, they've 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 suffered it. I think more than uh, than lots of other people. What does the Aga Khan, as their spiritual leader, say to them, if anything, about this whole uh, polarization? I'm, I'm, I'm not privy to that, mm-hmm. um, but I can, I can deduce from the actions uh, some things. Um, the Aga Khan has stepped up his investments in promoting uh, sustainable long-term development and tolerance in the societies that are hardest hit. Uh, by uh, 9/11, places like Pakistan and Afghanistan, mm-hmm. I think that um, you know the the Aga Khan Development Network program in Afghanistan is in the range of 50 to 60 million dollars a year now, and before 9/11, it was probably under a million. So he's and, investing in these war zones in a in a major major way. Exactly, and right. trying to and and not for the benefit of Ismailis, but for the benefit mm-hmm. of the entire society. Mm-hmm. Um, and as the only way, really, to um, have a, a safe place for his people. So in that case, if we, again, take your four principles just as a, a way of thinking about this, he doesn't have to foster constituency voices since he's right at the heart of the constituency mm. that he serves. Mm. Uh, his way of mapping paths to outcomes is to take a, a long-term, as you said, 20-year perspective on the businesses and schools and hospitals and other institutions that he invests in. And he clearly has to think from an ecosystem perspective because this is a small minority people in living under very different conditions in, in different countries around the world. Yes, uh, I like that. The constituency voice one, though, um, is an area of particular importance for um, a minority group. So if you're even where um, the investments and the programs of the Aga Khan Development Network are operating in every objective way without any preference to Ismailis, wherever there are um, resources going into poor areas, is going back to an earlier point that you made, um, there are going to be people who kind of say, actually, this is this is just a smokescreen to get more money to these smileys, and it's not benefiting us. 
and they're benefiting more than we are. And so the importance of of really developing constituency voice across all of the people in an area where investments are going is critical for the AKDN, and they put a lot of time and energy into it. So um, it's not just about being close to the Ismailis and having that voice as part. It's really having an extra obligation, I think, to go out and work with wider communities as one community, one minority community that's bringing new resources into a, what can be a very volatile situation. So in a sense, we've, we've taken two examples. One is your experience in South Africa. Second is your experience with the Aga Khan Social Development Network, just uh, as ways of looking at your four fundamental principles of how to make positive change in the world. Going back to the work of Keystone itself, where are you today in Keystone? What are the uh, projects you're focused on? What are you learning? What, uh, what are you developing that is at the cutting edge of your own thinking? Um, well, thank you for that question. Um, it's, I think at this point, over the last three years, we've developed a methodology and a series of tools which are um, internally coherent, which have some, some real kind of reality testing behind them in, in real-life organizations, and that are ready to be applied and extended uh, in more places in the world. And what I'm finding, though, is that we're kind of describing and, and, and asking people to adopt practices that are not widely uh, seen as, as, as th- there's no effective demand, as economists would say, for what we're proposing they do. Um, there's, there's a recognition that this would be useful, um, but you know, if you're sitting inside an organization, either as a foundation or uh, as a nonprofit, um, you know, what's compelling you to do this? Where are the external pressures to do it? And so our challenge really is now that we, in a sense, feel like we've got our it, how do we um, create the conditions where, um, where there's a much more of an effective demand for the it? And so I've, I've been applying my mind a lot to that recently, and, and I've got two themes that I'm working on. One is to find those uh, organizations out there that are, are really influential and are, have special reasons uh, to um, move on this and be kind of first movers and pioneers and leaders. Um, for for different reasons, um, and so we've been kind of looking around for for those kinds of partnerships and starting to build some of those. And um, it, it's it's uh, it, it's it's interesting. There are different reasons. Uh, one uh, good example comes from our work with the Kellogg Foundation in Southern Africa, where um, the that office um, is. Um, really ambitiously trying to develop original rural development methodology that works in Africa, because their view is that it really never has been proven. You know, no one's really figured out the way to. This is South it. Africa. Yeah. Well, they're working across Southern Africa. I see. Okay. And the team, ha- the team that is doing this, happens to be drawn from all across Africa. There's West Africans and Southern Africans on the team. And they are a kind of self-conscious group that says, you know, no one's ever. Um, no one's ever uh, uh, kind of figured this out, and by God, we're going to do it. And um, uh, and the Kellogg Foundation has, has hired them and kind of put them there and supported them to do it. And they understand that they need to have a really powerful con- 
constituency grounded learning system at the heart of this if it's going to work. And so there was a natural affinity between what we're saying and what they're saying, and we have staff based in South Africa. So it was one of those cases where you have a kind of pioneering um, uh, partnership. I was intrigued on your website to find uh, that uh, keystoneaccountability.org, that you have a a tools and products uh, section of the website, and you've adopted an open-source, non-proprietary model for uh, uh, your work so that you, you make a whole bunch of tools available for download, you know, free. Um, so you, you have tools about organizational self-assessment, strategy and planning, accountability, monitoring and evaluation and reporting. And so people could take a look at these tools and, and see how they might actually work for them. Exactly, and, and test them out. And, and the, this leads me to a second strategy that we're working on, which is uh, we're trying to create and support um, what are called communities of practice amongst people who are testing out these tools so that they can learn from each other, which goes very much with the open source idea. So that Keystone is not an expert that kind of knows, but rather a facilitator of a community of people who are learning together and having experiences and testing out these tools and developing these tools. So ultimately, next generations of these tools won't come from us, but they'll come from the people who are using them and growing them. And um, and our role then becomes one of stewarding this process of societal learning around how we do this. It's kind of a Wikipedia approach to... Exactly, uh, or a Linux. I sometimes say we want to be the Linux of, of social change methodology. Right. It's very interesting to me that one of your tools uh, is called Developing a Theory of Change. And, um, and that's really a sort of very central point that behind all good philanthropy or all good uh, nonprofit interventions, somebody has a theory of social change. And, and making that theory explicit uh, is a, a fundamental aspect of uh, strategy and planning. And th- this is an idea that, you know, is out there now and is ex- moving very quickly through, uh, uh, through the world. It's, I don't know how long it's been, been around, but not that long. But it's moving very, very fast now. I, was, I, was, uh, uh, I got a call, in fact, just yesterday from a guy who was visiting London and wanted to sit down and talk from uh, a foundation in Israel. And he said, a year ago, we got a call from our board, and they said we had to shift gears and become a much less reactive foundation and a much more, uh, a much more effective one. And so we went around the world, and we uh, figured out that we needed to be developing theories of change. I thought that was very funny. So when they kind of went out and did their homework, they saw that this is what you have to do now if you're going to be serious about social change. Um. When you, so in, if we sort of reflect on your own theory of social change, um, it seems to be that, that if you can find a way to address what many foundations have regarded as an unachievable holy grail, which is uh, really effective evaluation. But you seem to have taken that question and, and said, you know, it, it can't just be evaluation for the funder. Mm-hmm. It, there have to be common tools that the funders, the uh, non-governmental organizations, the constituencies can work on together. And somehow, if I read you right, 
what you're doing here is to create a dialogue about these issues rather than saying there's going to be a final set of tools uh, that one size fits all and uh, that funders can sort of just adopt and impose on the uh, non-governmental organizations and, and on the uh, constituencies. That's exactly right. The, the, the holy grail idea that there is a it comes from the single perspective of an outside investor uh, into a social change process, someone who wants to make an investment of money, whether it's a grant or some other kind of investment, in to support social change. And when you, when you wear that hat, you say to yourself, I want to put my dollar to the greatest good in the world, and therefore I want a way to look across organizations and see which one's going to make the most good for my dollar. It's a kind of way of thinking. It's a classic kind of economist way of thinking, but it's it's a it's it doesn't work. It is a holy grail. It is a kind of chimera. It's not. I don't think it's achievable because it's the wrong question. You know, it's, you're looking for the wrong thing, and social change is a process that involves the entire ecosystem and multiple actors. But that doesn't mean then if it's the wrong question or it's the wrong thing to look for that you throw out the quest to make discerning discriminations across organizations. Some are more effective than others. But what you want to do is look at the right things. And the right things turn out to be complex. You want to look at the, the what things that are at the heart of you know our methodology, I think. You want to look at whether organizations have real strategic clarity and a, and a theory of change that's been ground-truthed in, in their constituents, whether they're really uh, producing constituency voice and um, ultimately, um, uh, you know, publishing their learning in ways that allows society to learn how to solve the problem. And if you do that, then you look, end up looking at the capabilities of organizations as the thing you really want to compare. David Bombright, thank you very much for being with us at the New School. Thank you, Michael. I've really enjoyed talking with you. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal please visit our website where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org new school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the new school and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the New School.